Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, my interview is with Gregory Zuckerman, a special writer and investigative reporter at The Wall Street Journal. He's also a best-selling author. His latest book is A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life-or-Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. We got to discuss unsung heroes of the COVID-19 vaccine, what went right. You know, there are so many books and articles and news stories about what went wrong. Well, this this book is about what went right. A little bit about the drama, some lessons learned, and what he thinks about the future of COVID-19 based on the countless hours of research that he did to write this book. I also want to point out that the upcoming episode after this episode is a very unique event. Yeshiva University has agreed to allow me to go on campus and do a live interview. The interview will be live streamed. And for my guest, I'm excited to say that a friend of mine, the ambassador of Bahrain to the United States, Sheikh Abdullah bin Rashid Al Khalifa, will be joining me and we will live stream that event. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. So today I'm really pleased to have with me Gregory Zuckerman. Greg wrote the book, A Shot to Save the World, The Inside Story of the Life or Death Race for a COVID-19 Vaccine. So many of us have been vaccinated. Not enough, but so many of us have been vaccinated. I know I was just dying to get the vaccine when it first came out. I remember I was in Dubai. My daughter got engaged to a great guy from Long Island. They're since married, but they got engaged in Dubai, and we went to a very dear friend, an Emirati friend, um, to celebrate the engagement, and he had the vaccine already. His was from China. This was back in November of uh, 2020, and I remember thinking, wow, how did you get the vaccine? So um, the book is fascinating. It's a fascinating read. And uh, I think I'd like to d- start, Greg, with asking you, what inspired you to write this book? Sure. And uh, great to be here. And um, thank you for actually pronouncing my last name accurately. Most people go with Zuckerman, but it is Zuckerman. Um, so here I was sort of locked down in my basement, in suburban New Jersey, sort of nervous about the future like everybody else in early parts of 2020, the spring. And then I heard about this company, Moderna, that seemed to be in the lead at developing a vaccine. And who had ever heard of this company? It didn't seem logical. There were all kinds of suspicions about the company. People whispered about them and their CEO. It just sort of intrigued me. Then I dug into who else was chasing these vaccines, and it wasn't the people you would have expected. Merck and the vaccine giants. This it was a group in Oxford that had never produced anything before. This company, BioNTech in Germany. So that got me really intrigued as a journalist and also give me something to sort of root for, some, some hope um, in that discouraging time. So we have, I guess, one thing in common. We're both in suburban New Jersey. But the other thing we have in common is you, in January 2020, were traveling with some family members to Europe and the Middle East. I was also in the Middle East with my family, my wife and kids. We went to Israel, Jordan, and Dubai. And I distinctly remember 
sitting in the airport lounge on the way home towards the end of January, watching the news about China and looking at the screen and wondering what was going on. People in masks, lockdowns. Um, I even remember a scene where they were describing how Starbucks was now having to deliver their coffee on mopeds in a contactless, you know, no contact at all delivery. And I, I scratched my head and I looked at my wife who's a doctor and I said, you think this is coming this way? And I didn't think so. Um, I'm curious what, what's that? What'd she say? She's much more cautious than me. So I, I saw a look of concern on her face, but I'm not sure. I think she was busy with the kids and not quite paying attention. Actually, I'll, I'll take it a step further. About six weeks later, I was on the flight back from Miami. This is very early March of that year. And I was sitting next to a young man, probably about my older kid's age. You know, at the time it was probably, I'm guessing, 20. And he was wiping down the t- the tray, the seat, the armrest with uh, Clorox wipes, which, by the way, you want to know what my wife said. She sent me with Clorox wipes to do the same. Of course, I didn't listen. But I asked the kid what he was doing because I was curious what he would say. And he said his mom told him he had to do this because of this potential virus. And I remember thinking... I don't know, is that real? But I also was impressed. I said, I hope my kids listen to you the way you listen to your mother. So yeah. so what did you think? So as you say, I was traveling. I went from Israel to London. I was promoting an earlier book of mine. And um, my sons are a little bit more cautious or maybe smarter. And they, put, they wore these masks. They weren't the kind that we wear today, but these makeshift kind of things. And I kind of put one on, but then people were staring and I felt uncomfortable and I was a little self-conscious and I pulled mine off and everyone was saying, Fauci and others were saying, don't wear masks. You actually, um, it's more dangerous um, to, to do so. So yeah, I was kind of more complacent um, about this virus. The, the fascinating thing is the contrast. So the characters of my book, they right away in January, 2020, were nervous, scared, um, convinced that a pandemic was coming. That There's a character in my book, Juan Andres, who's not even a scientist. He's head of manufacturing at Moderna. And he bought a third television, I'm sorry, a third refrigerator. He stocked up on toilet paper, tissues. His, his family thought he was nuts, crazy. They rolled their eyes. They thought it was Meshuggah, and yet he was right. And sadly, a month later, his mother-in-law died of COVID. So um, there was a real contrast between the people that chased this vaccine and those of us who thought were well-informed and were kind of complacent about it. So you reference in the introduction to your book the point that success has many fathers, and that in this case, the triumph of this vaccine has fathers, mothers, grandparents, and all kinds of distant relatives many of whom have legitimate claims of that lineage. I worked in government. I I certainly can attest to that. I mean, whether it was the files that I worked on on some of the other successes, there are many, many fathers or parents or however you want to describe them to success. But walk us through that a bit on the vaccine. Sure. And I say that in my book because there are many people who legitimately contributed to this miracle. And it really is modern science's greatest achievement. I think we're a little too close to it right now to appreciate, but we will with time. And, and there are a lot of people that contributed, but also there are more people taking credit for it today. There are all kinds of scientists who say, oh, I was the one who invented mRNA, et cetera. But um, yeah, my book is really about the fact that both the mRNA vaccine approach, uh, which led us to the Pfizer and the Moderna shots, uh, and the adenovirus approach, which led us to the J&J and AstraZeneca um, shots, um, they both um, took years, decades of work, and 
Um, I can kind of go through it quickly, mRNA and that history or the dental virus approach. But the, the important point is they weren't done overnight. There was a lot of really groundbreaking work that people didn't really appreciate leading up to 2020. And then they turned on a dime and focused on this new virus. So all these vaccine specialists that I write about, they thought they had an approach that would work during the next um, bout, battle with a, with a new virus, but they weren't sure and they had to prove it. And they did so last year, but um, it was years and years of dramatic, important, groundbreaking work. And you describe these guys, these women in the book, and you point out that some of the most important players in this historic achievement were unknown scientists. What can we learn from that? For one thing, not to dismiss people as I did before my book, frankly, companies that have a dollar or $2 a share price, scientists that haven't made much headway whatsoever, and they spent years on their approaches. It's not to say that they all will succeed, but maybe we're a little too quick to dismiss them. Um, like Novavax is this company I write about in my book. Stock going into January 2020, stock was about $2 a share. They had a few months left of cash before they were going to go bankrupt. They were convinced they had made headway on their approach. No one else was. And they're not approved yet, but they will be soon, I believe. And they'll be really important in lots of countries around the world, not so much in the West where we don't need their vaccine, but it's a very effective vaccine. The other, the other um, I think, lesson, life lesson is just the importance of resilience and persistence. That's one thing I've really been impressed by. You know, I, I'm in my business in journalism because I like to produce something quickly, uh, be it in a few days or in a book at the most a year or two. Um, these vaccine specialists that I write about, they spent years working on approaches, in, incremental improvements. And I, I have a lot of um, respect and admiration for that persistence and that patience. I, so that's something else to learn from. So I don't want this next question to sound political because I really want to try to avoid the politics. Maybe I'll have some shows on politics, but this one is not intended to be political. So I'll ask it in a broad way and indulge me by answering in a broad way without naming names. How unprepared around the world, not just the United States, but how unprepared around the world were politicians, government officials, business leaders, public health officials? Was anyone even prepared for this? Well, the good thing about this answer is, right, no one really was. We, we live in a short-term oriented society, and I don't mean just government officials. All, all of us, there's very little planning for the future. There were people that warned, um, you can go back and see audio tapes of, from Dr. Fauci, from Bill Gates, uh, others, um, but um, most of us were kind of focused on our day-to-day, -day and even the small little things like having enough masks and things like that, we hadn't uh, prepared ahead of time for. Um, and yeah, it was pretty much all government officials. The vaccine, one thing, one of the reason I wrote this book is I like to, I like to write positive stories. So, um, you know, we've written, we've read about what went wrong. My book is about what went right. And that when it comes to vaccines, I would argue the government did a great job. Private industry did a great job. Wall Street did a great job. Science had been preparing for years and we didn't really appreciate all the work they, these people have been doing for years. People like Moderna where, where people, we, we all skeptics uh, abounded and people mostly thought, Hey, they were just exaggerating their accomplishments and their progress, but they were making progress. So the contrast is fascinating. You got the, the people that really were unprepared and weren't even focused on what could, what could be coming. And you had these scientists who were in their labs saying, no, there's going to be a new pathogen. We're in this world where we're cutting down trees and we're 
encroaching on animals and there are viruses that are likely gonna be, we have to deal with that are jump from animals and we gotta be prepared. So um, I give these people so much credit. So now that we learned that, right? Now that we learned what you just said about how there are gonna be new pathogens, now that the world was devastated and suffered through this pandemic for such a long period of time and suffered in so many ways, do you think that we've learned our lesson or do you think once this wears off, we're just going to get back to the normal routine and not be prepared for the next one? Well, I'll give you some bad news and good news. The bad news is I don't think we've learned many lessons per se. Um, we are divided as a people. Everything is politicized. Um, we ignore the experts and science and we increasingly trust our brother-in-law who heard something on YouTube uh, or some Facebook posts rather than our own internist uh, who gives advice. We forget about ignoring them. We, we're suspicious. We, we America, um, you have instance all the time where health, health uh, officials, public health officials uh, worry about their safety. I mean, these are people they're, they're not without faults, that they're not without mistakes. They, they make them all the time, but they could have left and made a fortune in, in private industry. All the people at the NIH, all those scientists, there's 70 year olds, 80 year olds I, I have dealt with who just come into the lab every day trying to come up with cures for us all. And yet um, they're under threat. Um, so there's a lot that um, is really discouraging for me and the people that uh, I've talked to for this, for this book who, who did the research. And here, can you imagine you've been going all out 24 seven for last year or so trying to produce these vaccines and some people accuse you of, of causing harm in, in, intentionally so it's um that's very discouraging but i but but i don't want people to be too discouraged they these vaccine uh, specialists are working uh, on the next uh, approach and the next illness and the, and the, the next virus and um all these billions that they're making, yes, they've gotten wealthy, but I, I see no signs of them slowing down their research. They're pivoting. These companies that I write, BioNTech, um, Moderna, all the scientists, are, they're focusing on things like cancer now and malaria and AIDS and turning off our immune system when we need to for our immune kind of diseases, MS, et cetera. So they're still out there working for us. So, and and there, are, there is a lesson that we've also learned that private industry and, and the public can work closely together. We um, produced these vaccines so quickly, not because we cut corners, but because we did things simultaneously. We developed and tested and manufactured at the same time. For the, and, and that's never happened before. So hopefully, it, it, God forbid, we, we have to deal with something like this again. I think we do have a model for how to react to it. And you mentioned that you wrote about what went right, which, which is one of the reasons I really enjoyed the book, because so many books today are about what went wrong and playing the blame game and all that. Put some flesh on the bone here. Why don't you pick a few favorites or don't pick favorites. Just tell us about a few of these heroes. Maybe you want to call them unsung heroes. So my listeners can understand who these people are that got us to this point of essentially saving the world. Sure. So um, I'll first talk about that company, Moderna, and the CEO, Stefan Bansell, who's just a fascinating character. He's not a scientist. He's a Harvard MBA. He uh, is an engineer. And he became convinced by this approach called mRNA. And that's what the company is about. And mRNA is a molecule, a messenger RNA. We have it all inside of us. It transports the instructions from the DNA to the part of the cell where proteins are created that keep us alive. So DNA can't do it on its own. It relies on messenger RNA to, to bring the message, to bring the instructions. And scientists always kind of dreamed of, well, geez, that's so important, this molecule, mRNA. What if we created it in the lab, just like... Um, 
you have sugar, natural sugar, and you have synthetic sugar, which is kind of as good, almost as good kind of thing. They said, hey, let, let's try to build mRNA molecules in a lab, and then we can use them as part of vaccines or, or drugs and cre create any kind of protein in the body. How great would that be? And just as quickly as they dreamed of this goal, most of the times they, they gave up on it because mRNA gets chopped up moment within moments uh, in the cell, <clears throat> excuse me, and is eliminated. And you know, all these people that worry about, oh, mRNA vaccines are changing our DNA or putting in you know, microchips, et cetera. It's silly stuff because no one really wants to work with mRNA for decades because it's so short lived and so unstable. But uh, Moderna and Van Cell said, you know what, let's try to ignore, let's see if we can ignore the skepticism. And he was a difficult boss. He drove people crazy. Um, he pushed them really hard. People were collapsing in the office, collapsing outside the office, in the parking lot, at home, hitting their heads, being rushed to the ambulances, to, to emergency rooms, because they're trying to keep up with him. And he was a hard driving boss. And a lot of people didn't like him. And other people were inspired by him. He was a little bit of a um, Steve Jobs kind of character. He pushed people hard, but he did have his vision. He said, we're going to create these mRNA molecules that will save lives. And we'll, we're going to be the ones to step up in a crisis. And by 2020, the early 2020, the, the stock was down. People were skeptical. Um, they were cutting back on expenses. It wasn't, they had never created anything before, nothing that had been approved, no vaccine, no drug. They ran into real problems, and yet they believed in themselves, and they stepped up, and they created a vaccine, and it really proved effective. So they're a fascinating um, group of people. The, uh, the people behind the, the Pfizer group I could talk about too, BioNTech in Germany, they're an interesting group as well. My understanding is you interviewed more than 300 scientists, executives, investors. How hard was it to get that access? And were people sort of excited to talk to you because this was the news of the moment for so long all around the world? So you had a range of people. You had those scientists who thought they were part of something historic. And they were sort of a Manhattan project for our day. And they wanted to share and talk about it, um, what role they played and what they contributed. And then you had other scientists and others who were, weren't allowed to talk, weren't supposed to talk, um, were reluctant to talk for various reasons. Sometimes it's the government scientists who are eager to talk and are allowed to talk um, much more than those in, inside business. So often journalists focus on the government scientists because just, the access is easier. But to me, the, the, the revolutionary work, there was, was as much being done within the corporate labs too. So I needed to get inside there. So that was a challenge. It was also a challenge just to get people to talk within this company, Biontech in Germany. I had plans to go to Germany, but um, with the lockdown here and there, it was even worse there. I, I couldn't get there. I couldn't get to England. I wanted to talk to people within the uh, Oxford group. Thankfully, I, I got inside those groups in those efforts just from my basement, talking to enough people, asking enough questions emailing, making requests, you keep trying and, and, and you succeed, but it, it was hard. It was, it was, it was a challenge. Yeah. I spent three years in Washington. It's uh, there's a lot of drama in Washington. How much <laughs> drama beyond the normal corporate uh, competition? How much drama do you think there was in, in this race and eventual success? There was much more than I had expected, much more than I think people are aware of. I mean, if you take Moderna, for example, in May of 2020, which is relatively recently, they had developed a vaccine. It looked good in animals. It looked like it was creating these neutralizing antibodies to, to fight off the, the disease. Um, they wanted to manufacture these vaccines, and they could not get the money. Remember, they had all those um, 
financial pressures going into 2020 and the stock was down and they didn't know where they get the money. And they went to the government. They went to the Gates Foundation. They went to Merck. They went to Merck and said, let's work together. Just like BioNTech and Pfizer working together. Why don't we, Moderna, work with you, uh, Merck? And Merck wasn't interested for various reasons. You can read about it in the book. They dragged their feet. They weren't so convinced that mRNA was going to work. There were all kinds of other reasons. So they were frustrated. They were, they were really despondent, really. And this guy, Stefan Benzel, I mentioned, the hard-driving CEO, He's a great salesman. He's maybe the preeminent salesman in the whole biotech industry. It raised billions of dollars for Moderna over the years. Here, here the chips were down. He, they needed the money, and he could not get the backing. He, and he, he was really depressed. And luckily, they turned to Wall Street. And, you know, it, it's interesting. You know, we, we are very critical of Big Pharma and Wall Street. And, you know, sometimes it's warranted. But in this case, Wall Street stepped up, and investors wrote checks for Moderna. Over a billion dollars of shares were sold. And that was the money that they used. So there was a lot of drama in that. Had they not been able to raise that money, we wouldn't have these Moderna vaccines. So we were, we have to be really appreciative. I mean, um, there's so many ways this could have gone wrong. We have to be really appreciative that the virus emerged in late 2019, early 2020, and not a few years earlier because the technology wasn't there a few years earlier. And um, we would not have been able to produce these vaccines so quickly. So it's an interesting point because you're right. Big Pharma and Wall Street are constantly being hit from the political side. But in the end, I guess they too comprise some of the unsung heroes in the story. I agree. Uh, very unsung and underappreciated. Listen, capitalism isn't a perfect system. It's, I always say, it's the, it's the worst system other than all the rest. <laughs> but um, there are times, you know, I've talked to the executives and scientists of, of, these companies, a lot of them are foreign born, and they all say we could not have produced these vaccines without America. American investors, largely, they wrote checks. In no other country will, will investors write checks on the hope that maybe down the road in a few years or many years, there'll be some profits. It's a crazy concept. And, um, you know, we're a, a country of individualists and, and dreamers, and more so than other nations, I would think. You know, you talk about American exceptionalism. I, I think there's still something to be said for that. We are unique here. Um, there are other countries that share some of these attributes, but just the, the aspect of, of dreaming and thinking big and having these ambitions is something to um, appreciate. So most people seem to say that we will not see the end of this virus, that it's going to mutate and wax and wane, and we're going to have to manage through it. After all this research from with all these important people who know so much, what's your takeaway on that? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm of the belief as well that this is not going to go away. It'll become endemic. It'll sort of melt into the background, which isn't awful. We, we have four other coronaviruses already that float around in society and cause the common cold. And that, I think, eventually is, is what happens here. Yeah, you get runny nose and a cough and a cold from this coronavirus, but because of the vaccines, because of the, there are drugs coming, they're going to be really good. Uh, Pfizer has one that looks very effective. We will be able to handle this 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 virus. It, it will morph. It'll there'll be new strains in areas that aren't vaccinated. It'll crop up, and there'll be more than just um, runny noses. There'll be hospitalizations and deaths, sadly. But as a society, I think we can handle this thing. And also, there are second and third generation vaccines coming, which I'm very excited about. I think we're going to get to the point. People often say to me, oh, Greg, I got to go into the doctor. You're telling me every six months, every year. Well, yeah, but I think they're going to eventually combine the vaccine so that it'll be an all-in-one, maybe with flu. Maybe they throw something else in there. So it won't be that much of a burden. 
I remember when I used to have to go for the flu shot, it was a burden. You know, I was working hard, long hours. It was the time. And this was probably before you were able to get it at your local Walgreens and CVS. But I do hope they combine it because, you know, to keep going back for shots is obviously very inconvenient. Yes, yes, yes. And, and the flu shot isn't that effective. These are much more effective than the flu shots. So some accuse China of manufacturing this and leaking it out intentionally. Others say it was leaked out accidentally from the Wuhan lab. Others say it happened naturally. Based on all your research, what's your what's your takeaway? So my view is that it likely happened naturally. It's not to say I exonerate the Chinese. They weren't very transparent. As I write in my book, that there was a really courageous Chinese scientist who shared this genetic sequence with the world. And that allowed us to create tests, allowed us to create drugs and, and vaccines. If not for him, I don't know what would have happened. The Chinese eventually did share the sequence, but it was after, it was like a day or so after this, this courageous scientist did there. And would they have had this not leaked out? I don't know, maybe not as quickly. That would have cost many lives. So um, they're not very transparent. They're still not very transparent. But um, my view, and my, what, what do I know? I'm not a scientist. I talk to mainstream virologists, structural biologists, people that do this for a living. They're not, what I find kind of frustrating is sometimes you pick up an op-ed and there are accusations in there about what the Chinese did. And then you look at the background and it looks like a doctor and it could be even like a Harvard or some Stanford connection, et cetera. But they're not in this field, which is kind of crazy. I mean, my own newspaper has run some op-eds by people that make good arguments and they're doctors and they're well-established, but they're not in this field. They're not virologists. This isn't their area. So when you talk to people with an expertise in this area, they say there's a probably a five or 10% chance that it leaked um, accidentally. Most people don't believe that Chinese actually created this intentionally because to have that kind of self-confidence that I'm going to create a lethal um, virus, and yet it's not going to spread in my own country. I'm sure. I'm so certain it's not going to. I'm going to be able to get it spreading in the West and elsewhere around the world, but everywhere but my own country. I mean, that's a lot. To, a lot of confidence. A lot. A lot of to, to, to think. Um, could it have um, um, leaked out uh, unintentionally? It's possible, but people have these suspicions. They're like, "Well, wait, wait a second. Wuhan. They have that lab. Why would they have a lab? And and that's where it started. Well, Wuhan is a huge, enormous city, and it's bigger than. Chicago and New York combined. Um, and historically, these things happen every once in a while. You had the earlier coronaviruses, which started from animals, MERS and coronavirus and, and, and SARS. Um, what about HIV? HIV for years. I mean, I'm old enough to remember there were all kinds of accusations about HIV. Oh, the CIA, the US government, the KGB started because we couldn't find the animal host. But then we did. It took about a decade and then we did. So I think likewise, I think We'll find the animal host. It could take um, it could take a decade. It could take years. But my guess, my bet, is that we do find one. And what would your advice be to the U.S. government or, or any government around the world of lessons learned, including the sort of public-private partnership here, which in this case seemed to work fantastically? Well, one thing, and, and the, I don't know if they need to learn it from me. They learned the lesson. They were smart. They realized that the the downside, in terms financially, downside was hundreds of billions of dollars if this economy stayed closed, closed. So we're going to write checks and we're not going to worry about the amount of money. And that's what they did. They bet, they say basically they bet, they bet on six different vaccine approaches, um, six different vaccine companies or efforts and three different approaches. And they got them right for the most part. Um, I'd say four out of the six are out there right now in arms around the world. 
uh, three of which are in America, the AstraZeneca, which is around the world. And then there are two more coming. There's the Novavax, which will be really helpful, and maybe GSK Sanofi. So I think the government will get five out of six right. And so they, they that lesson needs to be reiterated that um, don't worry about about the amount of the checks when it comes to the world being closed and the economy is being closed. Um, and yes, working with the companies, supporting the companies in other kinds of ways too. I don't think people appreciate that Operation Warp Speed was also got resources to companies like Moderna. I'm talking about like little parts that they couldn't get access to and um, things were locked down at the time in terms of shipping and trucking, et cetera. And Operation Warp Speed stepped up. So there are all kinds of mistakes made um, in terms of downplaying the virus by the government in terms of rolling out the vaccines, but in terms of supporting the vaccines, um, there are a lot of lessons and we, we can emulate, emulate the work that was done. At the end of the book, you write about Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who passed away in the fall of 2020. I'm a big fan of his writings. In fact, so many of my meals with my kids where I try to teach them about ethics and social responsibility and leadership and contributions to humanity, I guess, obligations that we have to humanity, I use a lot of his teachings. Tell my listeners, please, as your parting message, what you, what you wrote about at the end of the book based on Rabbi Sachs's words. Yeah, so it was such an honor to be able to quote from him and cite him um, at the end of my book. He had passed just months earlier. It's still a huge loss. And he he's um, deep and um, he's got lessons and um, and teaching that that um, is instructive to everyone. And his point is that we're living in a me society. Everything is about self-actualization and self this, self, self that, as opposed to we. And if you look at the nations that got through this thing a little better, it's those in Asia, elsewhere, who stepped up for each other. And we've got such remarkable, unique aspects to this country and in the West in general, I guess, um, more broadly. Um, the individualism and the ambition and um, the innovation that, that I saw in the labs and as I wrote the book, the, the people that over the years took risks and ignored the skepticism and believed in themselves. And that's such a Western trait, especially American. And, and the, you know, the ability to get rich and famous. Fine, if you're going to save my life while getting rich and famous, good for you. And um, there's, it's, it's a real incentive. And those incentives exist in the West, especially in America. But we need to also take lessons from from others and um, looking out for each other, caring for each other, be it, you know, um, reaching out to neighbors and others and making sure they're okay during the lockdown. That's one of the lessons. But um, in terms of putting on masks and I, I get how um, people don't like to be told what to do and why are you telling me? I, I, I get it. But um, more importantly, um, you know, I, I'm speaking as a Jew here. Everything's about life. We, we emphasize the, the, the value of life above liberty, above individualism. So while individualism is really important, um, the value of life is more, oh, it supersedes everything. So yes, is it inconvenient for me to put on a mask? Sure. Does it itch me and um, infringe on my personal liberties? Yes. But maybe we, we, we um, compromise a little bit there for the sake of others. Um, and then we take the best of both worlds and, and, to me, that's sort of the, the goal, to, and that's, I think, what Rabbi Sachs, I believe that's what Rabbi Sachs was advising, too. And it seems to me we could probably do another podcast or three on this topic alone, um, and I think this, um, you know, our divided nation needs some healing, so I think it's a great message beyond just the topic of your book. 
and, and Jason, if I could just add, so you talk about the divided nation and it, it, um, it's so discouraging for me because I'm a moderate and um, a lot of what I've learned is traveling the country and meeting people that I wouldn't otherwise meet. So I wrote my earlier book called The Frackers is about the energy revolution of this country. And I got to little towns in Oklahoma, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Texas, Louisiana, and just meeting people and breaking bread with them. And, you know, I keep kosher, so it's harder, but you can still do it, have a soda and a, and a salad. And, um, and, and meeting people, and we don't do that anymore. The, the opposite sides of the spectrum just have these views of each other that they're unlike us and they're different values. And we, we share so much more than you would think. I remember I, I once went to a breakfast and, and Michael Bloomberg was talking about the divide in Washington, D.C. This is years ago. And he made a really interesting point that part of the problem, and it's a small part of the problem, but part of the problem is that the travel, it's so much easier for Congress people, senators, et cetera, to go home to their constituents over the weekend. Back in the day, they weren't able to. They had to stick around Washington and get to know each other, have a beer with each other. And, and that has, has led to some of the devices. And that's just not knowing each other and getting to know each other. And I don't know how we do that, honestly, how we accomplish it. I was lucky to do that for my books in the past, travel the country. But most of the time, we just live, we, we live with people that agree with us and believe the same kind of things and read the same and, and go on Facebook and everyone agrees with each other. And we have these bubbles and it's not healthy. Terribly important message. We've got to get out of our echo chambers. So thanks for sharing that. And Greg, thanks for being on the show. Um, I think the book was an important one. I hope lots of people read it. And I appreciate your time very much. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Jason. Thank you. Hi, it's Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. What an interesting story. I was particularly taken, really, by the conclusion where he quotes Rabbi Sachs and the discussion between I and we. Our society is just so incredibly divided, and I think we could all heed that advice. Let's become a we again. That said, the information he provided about the COVID-19 vaccine, the unsung heroes, and so much more that he talked about and that I read about in the book, really compelling stuff. I hope you pick up a copy of the book. I hope that you enjoy it. I do want to point out again that my upcoming episode will be live streamed from Yeshiva University. My friend, the ambassador of Bahrain, Sheikh Abdullah bin Rashid Al-Khalifa, has graciously agreed to join me. We will be talking about the Abraham Accords. We'll be discussing Bahrain, Bahrain's place in the region, Israel, and so much more. Please do turn in. It's coming up, and I hope you enjoy it. If you found this podcast informative, Please do share it and my other podcasts with your friends, family, and colleagues. You can listen to The Diplomat on Apple, Spotify, and wherever your podcasts can be heard. You can also find me on Twitter at GreenblattJD. That's at G-R-E-E-N-B-L-A-T-T-J-D, where I post these podcasts and other information you might be interested in. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.